Thank you for joining our podcast presented by Myosh on Investigations Differently, a Safety Differently Approach to Incident Investigation. Mark Alston will be discussing practical solutions to incident investigation based on the theory of safety differently. He's going to cover um, examples of traditional root cause investigation versus a safety differently approach, why root cause investigations miss important gaps, work as normal compared to work as intended, failure is not linear, there is a messy story, collection of evidence is key, comparing work as normal versus work as intended unlocks true organisational issues, operational learning questions and putting it all together on a three-tier timeline. Mark Alston has extensive experience in investigations. He commenced as a federal agent in the Australian Federal Police, responsible for investigating organised crime and large-scale drug and fraud offences. Since then, Mark has worked for a diverse range of organisations, including BHP, Rio Tinto, McMahon Holdings, CQMS Razor and Mitchell Services, with roles in incident investigations, risk management, safety and auditing. Mark has utilised root cause analysis methods including Taproot and ICAM, Five Wise and Essential Factors to investigate workplace incidents. Over the past 10 years, Mark has developed and implemented systems of work to manage incident reporting and investigation requirements, as well as the training of operational personnel and safety professionals in investigation methodology. With an investigation process that now focuses on work as normal approach, Mark has found a system of investigation that combines a safety differently approach with the principles of human and organizational performance to identify the true organizational issues that contributed to an event. As a principal facilitator for a motors consulting, Mark drives simplicity and quality in the products they deliver. Mark engages with clients and their workers to help them identify and understand risks and develop engaging and practical control management strategies. So, over to you, Mark, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, uh, thanks everyone, and so, thanks for listening to that bio. It's uh, it's always unusual to hear someone talk about yourself. So, uh, thanks a lot. Thanks everyone for coming along today. Um, I uh, uh, it's unusual not to to have uh, people in a room and 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 see your faces. So occasionally I might ask a um, a question and wait for a second for an answer before I realise that uh, there's no one going to answer me. So apologise. And uh, I'd like to thank um, Sarah and Myosh for. Uh, hosting today's webinar. So uh, I want to start off with a story um, and basically uh, one of my clients, they had a, some time ago they had a, a vehicle that was in an underground mine and the uh, driver of the vehicle was driving out. On the way out the driver had to stop at a certain location in their mine and remove their tag off the underground tag board. They jumped out of the vehicle and um, they went to take their tag off the board and they turned around and uh, the light vehicle had uh, drifted uh, or rolled down the decline and actually hit a, a shot creek rig down the end, which is underground, another underground vehicle. Luckily, no one was hurt in the incident. So the mine conducted a traditional light cam and um, I, I wonder if anyone could guess what the result was. And I don't think it'd be any surprise but basically uh, it was the worker failed to follow the procedure. And um, this is, you know, this is a common outcome from a lot of investigations. And uh, surprise, and think again, if I could ask you, um, 
what do you think that uh, the corrective actions were? Well, uh, I think it'd come to no surprise to anyone that the operator received a written warning and uh, basically uh, retrained and operating light vehicles. So how often do we see this uh, as a result of our investigations? I mean, the, the operator been operating light vehicles underground for 12 years. Yeah. What was that going to achieve in the retraining? Did they suddenly forget how to operate a light vehicle and put on the, uh, on the handbrake and put it in gear? Um, yeah. Are these actions you typically see in your organisation's investigations or have you seen them in the past? How familiar does it sound? Well, you know, this is, this is the issue we have. I see this far too often. Um, you know, it's this constant, you know, write them up, retrain them, and let's repeat again. And we just don't seem to be learning um, what we need to learn to prevent these sort of, you know, recurrence of incidents. So not long ago, <coughs> I got asked to come down uh, and I was doing some work for that particular mine and exactly the same thing happened. Uh, different driver this time, but at exactly the same mine in exactly the same location. And the driver got out, vehicle rolled down the ramp and hit a wall. And they asked me to do an investigation. So this time we decided, well, let's, let's focus on work as normal. Let's look at what's really going on. Let's get the true, let's look for the true systemic issues and not worry about the driver. And we conducted uh, a particular type of investigation. And this is what we found. There were resource constraints. There was normalized deviation from rules. Uh, there was no field leadership. There were shortcuts being taken. There were problems with risk assessment, supervision. There'd been trade-offs between um, income, revenue, and expense. Um, there was change management issues. Um, they actually didn't even need the process of stopping where they were stopping anymore to, 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 to grab their tags. They actually didn't need a tag board in that location um, anymore. They could have stopped that process uh, several years before. Um, when they actually put the tag board in the first place, there was no risk assessment. There was no change management conducted uh, to look at uh, the, the available parking and what, there was, what the, the sort of um, behaviours that might arise from not having enough parking, um, safe parking and pedestrian interactions. Uh, there was so much of a messy story and it still existed. There'd, nothing had changed. Um, and you know, at the end of it, when you put it all together, it was like, well, this was bound to happen. This it was this was no surprise to anyone that this had happened. So, this is the sort of thing we want to look at. And you know, to, uh, my, one of my favourite quotes from Todd Conklin is saying an event was caused by error or not following a procedure is like saying an object feuded, fell feuded, uh, like it's always true, it just doesn't teach us anything. I mean, have a look at your own incidents and investigations and have a look at your own procedures. Do you have a single procedure that ends the last step in the procedure or work instruction says, and hurt yourself? We don't. So it's, if someone gets hurt, it's obviously they didn't follow the procedure because we have no procedures that tell us to hurt ourselves. So we can't stop there. And that's too often what I see in a lot of investigations. So traditionally, we use a root cause or a, a linear sort of approach. Um, so we, or a five wise approach. And the problem with that is the failure probably wasn't linear. It never is actually. 
and there's almost never one root cause. And the bigger problem with this approach is it, it requires us to remove context in order to obtain understanding or learning. And actually, if you look at it, and um, uh, I was at a conference recently and, and Jonathan Lidcombe um, talked about it and he said, there's no other scientific investigation process that requires you to remain, to remove context, to get understanding. In fact, it's a prerequisite just about of every single scientific process. If you want to have understanding and learning, you have to first look at the context and the conditions. So the problem with this root cause analysis approach, this five whys, and they're used by like Taproot, Time, uh, ICAM, and a whole heap, you know, RCA, there's a whole heap of them out there, is they actually limits the scope of the investigation to the event itself. And there's just no room to examine variability. It encourages really structured thinking. Now, it directs you to perceived outcomes. And quite often, it results in blame. It looks at people. It focuses on the person right at the time of the task and excludes everything else that's going on around it. So to truly understand the event, what we really need to do is focused on how it happened, not just what happened. To do this, we need to understand the context or circumstances of work. You know, given the circumstances, was this event probable or even inevitable? There's all these things always exist. And if you want, you can think of like a Swiss cheese model, if you like that, if you look at that, although Reason debunked it as a, as a, as a model for investigation himself. But think of it as a, a 3D slices of Swiss cheese where the holes are always moving and the slices of cheese are always moving. That's variability. That's the conditions that always take place. They're always in existence. They're just floating around out there. So let's have a look at how, let's look at work. What is work as normal? What, what am I talking about there? Well, first of all, we're talking about black line, blue line, and those are for me with safety too. And, uh, safety differently in the work by you know Conklin and Edwards and, and Baker um, and Hanagel will understand what I'm talking about. Um, but let's look at workers intended. So if we look at you know simple timeline, workers intended. We call it the black line, you know, quite often because we call it black line. You know, procedures are written in ink. This is workers intended. These are our procedures, work instructions, our plan, maybe even for the day. Think about it yourselves. You know, you go home at night and you're working or you've got work the next day and you have a little idea in your head about what you want to do. You rock up at work the next day. Does that plan even survive opening your emails? It doesn't for me. <laughs> so it doesn't for our workers either. So what happens is work varies. Our plan changes and we call that the blue line. So we change, we adapt. Humans are compact, complex adaptive beings. So we adapt to all those things that are around us. And they can be things like production pressure, latent conditions, errors, you know, systems, some strengths in our system, weaknesses, fear of reporting, changing plans, forward processes, design shortcomings, trade-offs, you know, the trade, you know, what's the vision and goal of the business, the vision and goal of the person. So we've got goal conflicts. There's always a trade-off between safety and production. You know, workers are always going to be as safe as they need to be to get the job done. 
until they're not. You know, there's near misses. You know, just think of basic things like maintenance, breakdowns, you know, missing parts. All these things affect how our workers do the job. And the thing is, our workers are fantastic. They come to work with the intention to do the job. Get, 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 go home and get paid. But they'll always try and do the job. You give them a job and whatever resources you give them to do that job, they'll do it. Ask them to build a house with a, with a, with a bucket and a shovel and they'll build your house with a bucket and a shovel. Might fall down, but they'll still build it. So they're always doing these things. And you notice on this, there's no event. Right? All these things always exist until sometime they don't. And we end up with an event. But all those conditions or that context, that what we like to call a messy story, is always there. It's only when it all aligns or couples together that we actually get an event or a near miss. So the truth is out there. We can get good outcomes from investigations. We just have to be careful how we do it. And gathering the right information is the key. I've reviewed too many investigations where basically the information collected, or if you want, you know, evidence, if you like, um, was done very haphazardly. You know, a couple of statements, a couple of photographs, oh, that's enough, we'll grab the procedure and we'll make, and we'll analyze that and, the, and we'll get our root causes from there. The problem with that is if you get rubbish, put rubbish into your, it doesn't matter what analysis tool you use, whether you like the approach I'm about to outline today, or you use ICAM, Taproot, RCA, Five Wires, whichever you like, if you don't start with the right information, you're not going to get a good output. So just a couple of points, just remember that, you know, when collecting information, dealing with the people that are involved, we should use a just culture approach. Remember, you know, they're, some, they're hurting too, whether or not they're injured or not, they'll be hurting too. So let's have a look at it. So our traditional timelines are something like this, and you'd all be familiar with this, you know, date time work it did, date time work it didn't, and, and date time work, you know, equipment did this, worker did this, and, you know, sequence of events type stuff. And normally we'll put some five wires sort of under it, um, procedure not followed, procedure followed, you know, something broke down. And that's our typical sort of thing. And at the end of the sequence of events, we'll have our, um, what happened to our worker. For the purposes of the training today, for the webinar today, I haven't, you know, put in the post event stuff that we'd normally see in a timeline, such as, um, you know, the emergency response, because it's not part of the investigation. The problem with that is it only focuses on normally on the work that, on the events we have, so what the worker did. So it only looks at work is done during the time of the event and the procedures. We don't normally dig any deeper to what happened. So if we want to move past that, what we need to do is sort of look at the, the is to examine the event in three parts. And we'll look at work as done, which is that sequence of events we just saw then, what actually happened at the time of the event, that's that timeline. And, that, and we'll get that from statements and photographs and if there's a, you know, a surveyor and maps and all that sort of stuff. And that's very useful, we need to know that. 
The second thing we'll, we always get is that work is intended. So we'll get that, you know, we'll, we'll pop, we'll get the procedures, we'll get the work instructions, you know, we'll ask someone to print up the training and the policies and, you know, the pre-start or the take five and, and a JSA and all that sort of stuff. So we'll have that information and that's important too. But the big gap we normally get is that work is normal. How the work is normally done by the workforce. So we're gonna have a look at that because to understand true systemic issues within your organization and within this task, we need to examine the context and the conditions of how work is normally completed. We need to uncover these things, these true system issues. So as Baker said, if one person makes an error or breaks a rule, the probability is high that other people given the same environment, same information would probably do the same. So we need to understand that. So let's have a look at work as normal. What am I talking about? How do we get work as normal? Well, when we're looking at work as normal, we're looking at only on the task. What was the task? So, you know, in the example above, it might have been like just driving light vehicles underground, driving and parking light vehicles underground. Let's look at not just parking at the tag board, let's look at driving and parking everywhere and talk to people. Yeah, we want to go and talk not only to the person involved and you know, have a bit more of a chat because we, we all know that a witness statement never gives us enough. We want to know a bit more. So let's go talk to the rest of the team as well. Let's go chat to them. How do they do it? What's going on with them? What, what, what frustrations, what conditions are they having that are involved in this task? Let's go talk to other teams. What's going on with other teams? Are they doing the same thing? You know, or are they not? Are they have different constraints? You know, is it, is it the same or is it different? Let's find out what's going on. Other sites even. You know, quite often there's quite a few people I've noticed that have uh, signed up and there's multiple sites and they all do the same work at those sites, but they all have their local rational, rationalizations for doing things differently. Let's find out what some of those are. What can we learn from those? Night shift, night shift's my favorite. It, how often have you seen an investigation team go and talk to the people on night shift if they weren't involved in an incident? Now, if I can say this and I bet if I could have, if I had uh, uh, your webcams on, I could see you all. If I was asked you, if you've ever heard of the expression, let's do it on night shift, You'd all know what I was talking about. You'd all know why. Because there's less, there's less supervision. We can get the job done. Can't get it done on day shift. There's too many obstructions. There's too many constraints. There's too much supervision. Let's go and find what night shift's doing to get this work done. That's what we want to look at. What we're really after is that messy story that I mentioned about of the blue line. The constraints they're after, the frustrations the differences that the pressures they operate under. We need to understand that if we really want to understand what systemic issues we have within this task. Without going outside the event and looking at one person, we'll never know. We'll only know that one story and there's many stories we need to know if we want to uncover systemic issues. So this is my issue. I've been around a long time and I've, you know, worked at places and they've, and they've decided to have a, a, a let's have an investigation. Um, the ICAM will be at two o'clock on, on a Friday afternoon um, and you turn up and the only information is a few statements 
um, some photographs, some procedures, maybe the training. Um, you may or may not have the person involved in the room, more often not. Um, normally there's no one who does the work in the room. It's a HSEC advisor, it's a supervisor, it's a manager. Um, and that's if you're lucky. Quite often it's poor, the poor HSEC uh, or HSE advisor in a room by themselves typing it all up and then presenting it to a manager and said, here, I've done the investigation. That's not how it's done. You know, if it was serious enough to warrant an ICAM or similar investigations, surely it's seri serious enough to do it properly. And I'd suggest if you don't think it is, then you probably might have not classified your investigation correctly. You know, might not be worth doing this sort of investigation. Um, after all, we're all resource poor. Um, these are unexpected events and we can only you know, devote so much time to them. And if we're overclassifying, we'll just run out of time. So what do I mean by workers normals just not collected in a room? Well, you have to get out. You have to get out and about. You have to go into the field and learn. And that requires you to go and have conversations with people. Or, you know, go and talk to people, ask them questions. You know, learning teams are a fantastic way to get workers normal out. You don't even need an event. You can just have a task with a learning team, you know, but learning teams are a fantastic way to work as normal. That trusted environment, engaged intimate environment where you can learn about work as normal. How about observing some of the work being completed? Jump in a vehicle, jump in a car, put the high vis on, if that's what it is. Go and spend some time, you know, one of the ways you can do it is also looking at some of the records of your field leadership. Examine those. See if there's some patterns there. Previous incidents obviously will give you some record of what's happened in the past. If they've done using this process, you'll get some work as normal. If they're not, you'll get some work as done. And if there's enough of that, it'll give you, you know, it'll start to indicate maybe some of this is normal, normal ways of doing, doing the task. So it's all there. One of the ones, the other things you can do, you can use tools such as ICAM, Taproot, Human Factors, but use them as a guide to ask questions, but not frame the investigation, all right? When we're doing this, let's focus on the collection of the context of the work, not just the individual. Ask about the task. What are the constraints? What are the resource, you know, the trade-offs, the frustrations? What about the success? Ask about the success. When this task is going well, What's, what's in place? What are the conditions surrounding this task going well? That'll, that'll give you the adverse. Ask those questions, right? You, know, you can collect a bit of evidence on the existence of the systems and, and the discipline they use. Talk to the supervisors. Quite often, the uh, supervisors seem to be ignored in the investigation process, yet they're probably one of the most important people to talk. They set expectations, they set standards. They own the culture of your organization. Why do we leave them out? Ask other supervisors. How does their crew normally do it? How does he do it? How do they make sure it gets done how they intend it to be done? Let's do that. At the end of the day, we've got to get this right. One of the things we do is we have a bias. And this quote from Angela Baker is Andrea Baker is fantastic. How we viewed the driver affected our questions. Our questions affected our solutions. And our solutions affected the probability of other people being hurt. Our biases can drive the results of an investigation 
from our first contact with those that are involved. They can limit where we look. If we all automatically think, oh, the driver's at fault, we've already blamed them, you know, and I've heard, I don't know how many times I've heard, oh, what were they thinking? Um, you know, you, how did they manage to do that? But not in a, but in, but in a, a judgmental way, um, you know, using counterfactuals, if only they did this, you know, this gives a, job, a, a bias or a judgment, prejudges the investigation. And the problem with that is that then determines what questions we ask. <clears throat> Pardon me. And that, and then that, that's the questions we ask. So that just ultimately ends up, that's the information we base our, uh, our judgment on what the issues or the gaps or the learning opportunities are. And then that affects what the solutions we have. So, and then the solutions, well, it's obvious. If we don't get them right, then people still have a chance of being hurt. So it's really important that we don't, we go into these operate, into these investigations with an open mind and not prejudged, just be completely open. We need to shift your think, our thinking from who failed to what failed. So one of the things I get asked is, you know, what's some of the good operational questions asking for? And, and I've, I've referred to some smarter people than me. And these are ones, tell me more, tell me more about your work. And that's like those three words, tell me more, are my favorite generative questions you can ask. You can go into the field and you can ask someone, you know, how's your day going? And they'll go fine. It's like talking to your teenage son about school. How was your day? Good. Do you learn anything? No. Nah. Fantastic. I'm sure, I'm sure the, the people out there that have been exposed to that are laughing or, or nodding their heads right now. But tell me more. It means they've got to talk to us. They've got to give us a story. Tell me more about your work. You know, what's a bad day look like? You know, my preference is what's a good day look like for this process, for this task? From a good day, you'll soon know what a bad day is and you can explore that. What does a, you know, what is the worst thing that could happen in this process or this area or this task? What's, what's very unpredictable? You know, where's the variability coming from? What do you have to deal with that you don't expect? What's the unexpected? What near misses have we had? Now, I got asked a while ago when I was um, talking to some people about investigations, I said, how do we get people to be honest? Like, how do we know they're going to be honest and tell us about their near misses that they've had? Well, my advice is don't start with an investigation. These are the sort of questions you should be asking every time you go into the field. You know, get the trust, you know, help them fix some, some stuff, help them, help them provide, help, you know, help them get stuff fixed how they want it fixed. But, you know, that's where you get the trust. So, you know, what near misses have we had? Let's find out about those. How far back in the process should we start for us to understand? The great thing about that question is it helps set your scope for the investigation. Too many times I've seen timelines that start with someone coming to site 10 years ago and doing an induction. Why? We needed people. Why? Because to do the work. I mean, that's, it's ridiculous. Or, you know, truck brought to site. Why? For production. Why? To meet production targets. That, that doesn't help anyone and just clutters an investigation. But they'll tell you how far back you need to go to understand. Ask them. Really cool question. Do you have the right tools? Better yet, what tools do you need? What tools would improve the job? You know, what's predictable? You know, where's it easy to make a mistake? 
you know, use the analogy, and I've seen it used with heaps before. You know, if my, if your, if your, you know, ask them if your daughter or your son was to come in here and do this job, what would you make sure that they had covered? What would you make sure they knew? What are the, what's the essential pieces of information that they knew so to get the job done and not get hurt or damage anything? What would you tell them? Let's find out those. So these were all about <clears throat> pre-task, you know, the questions we asked just about the task before an event has happened. But then also sometimes we want to ask questions about after the event. And that's important too. So at the time, ask the people involved, what did you see, hear, see, think? What else should I know? Was there anything different before or at the time of the event? You know, let's find out what the differences were. Sometimes there, there might be a different condition in there that we hadn't, that's not part of normal work. We need to find out what that is. <coughs> Pardon me. Putting it all together. How do we get it together? So what I'm going to do is run through um, what, we, what I call, it's a three-tier timeline. And it's a way of putting together that work is done. That's the sequence of events from the event. The work is intended, our procedures, work instruction, and work is normal. How it's all normally happened. I'm going to show you a methodology that puts it all together and shows you how to do it. So I'm just going to show you an investigation of an event that actually involved a forklift and a truck. So let's have a look at that. So let's start off with work is done. This is, this, this is what happened at the event. So an operator was loading a truck with an out, with outgoing product. They loaded several pallets onto the truck when they started to load a pallet with a dozer blade onto the truck. While sliding the dozer blade onto the truck, loads made contact with the pallet on the truck, pushing the pad off the other side of the truck and onto the ground. The pallet narrowly missed the truck driver who was on the other side of the truck, securing the pallets that were already loaded with ratchet straps. Pretty standard, you get that from your statements and photographs. So what's that look? Well, that's a pretty standard, typical timeline, yeah? Work is done, you know, time date, what's going on, truck arrives, and so forth. Next thing we want to do is let's, let's plug in work as intended. So on arrival, this is from the work instruction, truck drivers will leave the loading bay and wait in the break room until the truck is loaded. Prior to loading, the forklift operators are to complete a loading plan for the truck to include weights and placement of loads to ensure the sufficient route for the load and where they put it, you know, even distribution. All personnel to remain outside of the exclusion zone while the truck's being loaded. Sounds pretty fair. Sounds pretty uh, what would normally happen in working, what you'd normally see. Plug it in. So at the top there, we've got workers intended and we try and line up, you know, the work is done with the work is intended at those steps to see how it to see how it is. And you can see there at the top of the line, they're, they're lining up with what actually happened. Then we have where our work is normal. So on arrival, this is from this is where we get out into the field and we ask those questions and talk with people. And this is just a sample. There was a lot more involved in this in, in this investigation. On arrival, truck drivers stay in the loading bay and commence securing the load as the pallets are unloaded, as the pallets were loaded. So they stay there. Workers intended, they didn't. Drivers stay on the forklift side in view of the forklift operators while sliding. They're only allocated one hour to load the trucks. It takes them 30 minutes to do a load plan, 45 minutes to an hour 
to load the truck and to secure it, it's about 30 minutes, you know, because of the, the, the shape and, and the weight of the load and the way it's distributed. Already, we're starting to see a bit of a messy story. And as I said, that's just a small sample of, of uh, some of the, the stuff that we came out of work as normal. So then we put that third one in and that's what we get. So if all of a sudden we've, we're starting to get a bit more of a picture of what's going on here, then the idea is let's, let's examine this timeline. What are we looking for? Let's look for the gaps. So the idea is to find the gaps. You know, we're looking there, the truck, the work is intended, the truck arrives at the loading bay and the driver leaves the area. Work is normal, the truck arrives at the loading bay and the driver stays with the truck. So we've either got a problem with our procedure or a problem with our work as normal. There's, there's a gap there between that. Right? We look here, the forklift operator, they normally create a plan, which is the same as intended. But on this day, he didn't. He just started commencing loading the truck. So we've got some issues there. We need to explore that. We go to workers, uh, we go to the next step. The truck driver remains in the break room. That's the intended. But this time, it's normally all the truck drivers stay out there and start securing the load. There's a gap there we need to examine. And so forth. Truck driver loads the truck according to loading plan. The driver loads it on there. There's not without the loading plan. And then obviously personnel stayed out of the exclusion zone around the truck whilst being loaded. But in this case, it's normal for the truck drivers to be there. But not only that, this guy has actually um, decided to be on the side where the forklift is. So the forklift operator could, uh, couldn't see him because he's on the opposite. We need to examine that. Something had changed. Something was different. So what we do is once we've got them, we need to investigate the gaps, right? Find the context surrounding the gap, those conditions I talked about, the restraints, the trade-offs, what's going on that causes that. Now, this is where it gets difficult for some people. They, they, find, they, they get set in the five why process. Now, five whys is useful, don't get me wrong. In some, some of it's useful, but don't be too linear though. Don't get stuck in the whys. Spread off. You know, imagine it's like a, I don't know, a constellation of stars. Um, grab every single little bit you can. Wherever it leads you, grab it, and that's what you want to go. And you've got to go to a depth of understanding. And what we're looking for is a depth of understanding that if you were given the same face with the same conditions, the same constraints, the same issues, that you probably might have made the same decision. Right? or a reasonable person given face with that, with their experience and all those things, might, that's the depth we need to get to. You know, dig deep. Don't just stop it. The procedure wasn't followed. And you do have to do this for each gap identified. So, you know, some of the things, there was insufficient time allowed to load trucks, no time allocated for securing the load. There was scheduling conflicts, not enough scheduling. There was no supervision of the loading process. There was no field leadership. Whole lots of host of things were, were, were seen. So we want to do that for everything. And this is what it'd look like if it was up, <coughs> if we're using post-it notes and we're putting them up on a wall or whiteboard or whatever. We just have them along these lines, you know, work is intended, work is normal, work is done, and we'd have them all up there and we'd just branch out. Now, normally, you know, for the, it might be a lot more spread out along the wall. Um, you might be grouping things together. That's the beauty of post-it notes. You can put them all around um, and really try and identify what you want to do there. So, and that's what normally would happen. 
But then, you know, sometimes you've got to take that, put it in report. So there's two ways you can really do it. You can take a photo of it and put it in. Um, and you know, for some organisations, that's good enough. But what you can do is use a template. And uh, as Sarah mentioned, um, um, she's uh, they, they, they'll send out my an email with my uh, details on my website, um, and there's a, a template for this uh, on my website that you can click a link and put your details in, and, and it'll email out a template. But this is what it would look like if you if you were to put it in a template, um, and and it's it's very familiar to those sort of uh, that you might have seen before. It's a sequence of events, except we've got instead of one sequence of events, we've got three. We've got the workers intended, workers normal, workers done. And then instead of why, 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 we've got conditions. Um, if you need to, spread it out. You know, really demonstrate what we've got there. And now I, I get asked the question about what do we fix? So the idea is, so let's pick out those conditions that we need to fix and, and then fix them. So, but how do we prioritize those we want to fix? Because, you know, I've seen, you know, you know, the uh, you know, ICAM, you know, organize, absent failed defenses, organizational issues or organizational factors. Um, you know, Taproot's got contributing factors and root causes, uh, root cause analysis, straight root causes and all very subjective, which was the most important thing to fix. So how, what's a good way of determining what we fix? So remember we're focused on the task. If we fix the conditions surrounding the task, we generally should prevent that incident from recurring based on the conditions we've fixed again from that task. Now, it might occur from other conditions, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't occur, reoccur from the conditions we've identified during the investigation. So how do you do it? So focus on those organisational issues surrounding a task. Don't concentrate on the person, concentrate on those organisational issue, issues which surround the task. Prioritise your action based on risk to your business, to your organisation. Right. Get, get out your risk matrix, risk assess the issue and go, right, what's the likelihood? You know, what's the potential consequence likelihood? And those that you know, have got higher, higher risk for the business, Fix those first. I think that's a far more scientific way of doing it uh, and practical logical way of doing it than just subjective, this is more important than another. You know, make sure your actions are reasonably practicable. You know, like it's a term that gets thrown around all around, especially in Australia, that reasonably practical, but they have to reflect the risks of the issue identified. Will they actually fix the, uh, the, the issue you've done? You know, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> and we've all seen it. Toolbox talks don't prevent incidents recurring. Sharing the incident, yeah, sharing the communicating the incident, what happened, and the issues and actions, vital in your organisation. But they are not a preventive corrective action in no, so in no way, shape, or form. They're not sustainable. So that's one of my, my one of my favourites, or I should say, least favourites. Uh, retraining, you know. Only if they don't understand what the task they're doing. That's the only time you want to see that. You know? And then if they don't understand the task, who else doesn't end this task? Have a look at your training. If they've been trained already, what failed in your training? Is your, how effective is your training if that's not the case? All right? So reflect on the risk of the issue and be reasonably practical. Make sure they're going to be effective. And look, there's a dozen models out there for, for everything from you know, smart and smarter and all those other ones. Have a look at them. They're quite good. 
Um, I didn't go into any depth with those here, but all I'm saying is make sure they're practical, make sure they're achievable, and make sure they address the issue uh, and not uh, and not just be some sort of lip service. Don't fall into the trap of being feel to compelled to do something for the sake of doing something. It doesn't achieve anything, and all it does is distance your workforce. And don't forget, <clears throat> test the actions. Will they prevent the event recurring? Go back, review your actions. You know, go back in three months. Talk to the people who do the work. And that's probably one of the most important things I can say about your actions. Before you sign off them, go back to the people completing the work as normal and say, if we change this, if we do this, or better yet, ask them before you do it. Say, we identified these issues and they'll probably go, oh, wow, thanks Captain Hindsight or Captain Obvious. Um, we've known about that for ages. Ask them how they would fix it. And then if they don't have any ideas, then test that your actions with them. What if we did this? Will it work? Get their sign off. There's no point in putting actions into place that don't, that won't work for them because they just won't do it. So the one thing I like about this model is that you can stop there, right? You can stop there. That, that's a way for organisations can just can do this. This is what we found. These are the gaps. These are the issues. Write your report and you can actually just stop there. You don't have to go any further. Um, but, you know, there's some organisations, there's a lot out there using different methods such as Taproot and ICAM and Five Wise and Fishbones and all the rest of it. You can actually plug that data into those timelines, into those sequence of events. You can plug those in and still pull out if you need to. You can still pull out your ICAM book, flip to page 67 and go A1, B1, poor hazard identification if you really need to classify. Um, and, and that's fine. It works as well and, 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 that's where, and that's where a lot of organizations are and it worked well from the past and that's fine too. So, but you don't have to, but if you need to, you can plug this sequence of events and the conditions that come out of it into any of these models and it will still work. Um, you know, that's, uh, that, and just highlight the issues. And look, just to sort of wrap it up, just a few, uh, a few uh, top hits. Gaps will often have multiple paths. Follow each path, like don't be linear. I probably shouldn't have wrote path there on the slide. I probably said, it, let it take you where it, you know, uh, just let it take you where it goes. Look at the circumstances, the conditions. Look for good outcomes. Oh, I would love to see more investigation reports and reviews where things went right. You know, a client of mine not long ago had a vehicle rollover and one of the great things they'd, they'd really put in um, and uh, about, uh, they really embraced uh, the hot principles of no blame uh, and error is normal. And they put in there about how they'd failed safely. They had a vehicle rollover at light speed um, and there was a minor injury, um, but they put in there that it could have been worse, but their critical controls worked. The, the, they were in a, a car that was uh, well-maintained and, and, and good for the task, and everyone was wearing a seatbelt. So they were wearing seatbelts. So no one got more seriously hurt. So they, they promoted the success of what went right. I'd love to see that more. That was fantastic. And just don't be restricted to a, uh, to a pre-formatted template. You know, if it doesn't fit, change it, you know. Um, 
Yep, so that pretty much wraps up my presentation for today. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll go over, I think, to Sarah. Thank you, Mark. Um, the first question we've got is from Summit, and I think it refers to one of your earlier slides. He says, in the blue and black line slide, was the blue line normalized deviation or is it a stage before? Yeah, I'm not sure what you mean. It's meant. The, the blue line is, yeah, it, it is normalized. It's a normalized deviation. This is all, it's just normal work. Um, people are complex uh, adaptive beings. They're always, they're very adaptive uh, humans. So they will always look to vary the work to make it work. Okay. Yep, um, <laughs> um, Muhammad asks, how much of work as normal should be documented? Should this be the norm of doing the work? Um, well, uh, it's two questions really there. The, the, how much should be uh, work as normal should be documented? In the purpose of the investigation, well, yeah, you should, you need, you need to document it. And that might just be on post-it notes or notes as part of the investigation process, process. Should be this the norm of doing the work? Well, that would make it work as intended. And sometimes they can't be. Like there's critical things that should always be done the same. So they're critical controls, you know. So, you know, we always want our brakes working and our, and our steering working a lot on vehicles. That's a critical control. Um, but it, we need to allow for variability because humans are variable and they'll adapt to work to do it. It's very hard. If you were to have a procedure that accounted for every single variation to the work, uh, it'd be unusable. So, yeah. So, um, I hope that answers both of those. Um, Chris asks, I may have missed it, but what is the difference between work as done and work <laughs> as normal? Does work as done relate to the one story of the event? Uh, yeah, so... Sorry, yeah, so yeah, Chris, work is done is the event itself. So that's that sequence of events you'd normally pull from statements and photographs and videos and you know, CCTV or whatever you've got. Work is normal is how everyone does it, including the person that would normally do that. When they normally do that task, this is how it's done, you know, 80, 90%, 900% of the time. This is how we normally do the work um, as opposed to on the day. And quite frankly, you know, that, that work is done for the event might actually match up a fair bit. Um, to work as normal. There might be only one or two gaps. Okay, Anonymous asks, understand work as done is different with work as imagined. What should we do for the policy procedure and other paperwork? Well, that's where when you examine the conditions of what's happened, you know, is the procedure wrong? Is the policy wrong? Is the, you know, is the work instruction wrong? Well, then change it. Is the way the work's normally being done is that a better way of doing it? Then change your procedure. Um, look at, you have to really look at those, at those policies and procedures. There's a lot of work going on in decluttering right now. And we, we make things too complex. And, you know, I, I teach a lot of people uh, about this, you know, work is done, work is normal, work is intended. And every time I ask a question, I ask you, the audience this right now, is if you were to say, how many of your work instructions, policies, procedures are 100% complete, and 100% correct. And I get answers vary from 40 to 70 to 80%. I never get above 80%. So there's always work to uh, be done in that space. Okay. Um, Graham Dent had the same question and I believe he had to leave. Um, 
So the next question is anonymous again. What are the major differences between ICAM and your investigation method? Uh, ICAM's uh, use a straight, uh, just a one timeline. Um, like even just the way they collect evidence, they use a PEPO. Uh, the first one on that is people. Um, so, you know, in, instantly you, you're focused on the people. Um, there is a bit of work environment stuff there, but we don't really focus on it. And then it's very linear from there. There's, it's straight up 5Y process underneath um, the sequence of events. And then it's very subjective about what then becomes, uh, you know, you, it's so complex. You've got to pull a book out to find out what's an absent failed defense or a, or an organisational factor or teamwork. And to me, they're just all issues that you need to look at. Um, so it becomes very subjective and it comes more about the people sitting around separating analysis or, or, or analysis of the conditions rather than actually identifying the conditions in the first place. Okay. Um, John asks, how often are you asked to supply, apply this process <clears throat> sorry, to p potential events rather than actual events? Um, not enough, John, to be quite frank. It'd be nice to be asked to apply this most. And it's simple. You just drop off the, how, uh, the, the, the work is done off the bottom of the timeline. There's two real ways if you really want to find out and learn um, what's going on in your organisation. One is learning teams um, and the other is a process like this. Um, but unless you're pulling people in, and asking, uh, asking them how it's work, work is normally done, you're not going to find it. But yeah, this methodology, and look, it, uh, Taproot and ICAM both talk about the same thing. Uh, they both say they can be used for, for, for investigating without an event, but no one ever does it. So it's very rare. I've been asked a couple of times um, to do it, uh, but not enough. Okay. Um Chelsea, Chelsea Lee asks, Mark, are we aiming to get to a place where work as intended equals work as normal? Uh, probably not. I don't, look, I don't think we can, um, to be quite frank. I think um, it's, it's, we need to in certain areas. So as I mentioned before, we need to identify, um, there are some things, and as a workplace, we need to stipulate like our critical controls. So, in our, in our fatal risk space, yes, work is intended and work as normal must be the same. And if they're not, we need to find out why and make sure our workers are protected and our critical controls are effective. Uh, and if they're not, and, and that part of the black line, that part of work is intended, that should be where, you know, we, we can't as an organisation accept deviation. Um, outside of that, um, then, yeah, we have to allow our workers intended needs to allow for variation. Now, you know, discussions I've had with a lot of people is what does it look like? Do we make workers intended more broad? Um, or maybe we, we give people a framework to operate in. So maybe our work is intended. Maybe we need to have to rethink about workers intended and not be so linear or, and, and maybe give people a framework to operate. So people can quite often, you know, I've, I've, you know with dealing with lots of people, you can have three people people doing the same job they all do it differently um, but they also get the same outcome but they're all just as safe just as efficient and they can all do it different we need to allow for that okay thank you um <clears throat> mark we have about eight or nine more questions so okay. are, you, are you okay with that yeah no that's fine <laughs> okay <laughs> anonymous has asked um, what methodology have you used 
have you mostly used during your profound investigation career? <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, oh, thanks, anonymous. Um, look, uh, probably it's been a mixture of taproot and ICAM have been the two most, um, uh, and uh, yeah, a bit of root cause, a bit of fishbone. So. Uh, a lot of that. That was that's probably been in uh, my non-police career. Uh, in my police career, we we had uh, other methods of investigation um, that we're trained in. Do you believe in different levels of incidents requiring different levels slash depths of investigation? If we were to investigate all incidents to this degree, we would need to hire another person. It's from Jen. Fantastic question, Jen, and you're a hundred percent right. My answer to that is no. You and and and. Good, a good investigation process will have an escalation um, matrix or something like that, or a tarp that says, depending upon risk to the business or potential risk to the business, is where uh, you invest, is the depth of your investigation. Some things can be quite simple uh, and can be closed out in an afternoon with a, you know, talking to a few people. Um, but my, my answer to that, if you, you know, if you seriously would have had serious damage or harm to a person, or the business that could have been critical, then that is the depth. But where a lot of organisations uh, fall down is they overclassify. Everything could have killed someone, and that's just not true. Uh, just not true. So the key is, could if especially your potential near misses. So if you've actually hurt someone seriously, obviously yes. But your potential near misses, and this is where I said to find it. Make sure there's actual credible evidence or credible information that you almost did kill someone except for maybe one tiny little thing and then go in there. If not, you know, there's no need to go to this depth, but you know, you should always be looking at work as normal. Next. Yep. Hello. Sorry, I'm muted myself. <laughs> I'm trying to type and okay. Oh, okay. okay. John asks, can you use comments from workers as statements? Do you take it as true or would you filter it? What if someone lies to get what they want? This is quite restrictive in the event of an incident occurring in a small team environment. Um, the answer to that is no. Um, I, I, statements are useful for giving you an idea of what might have happened. Um, I would never conduct an investigation without talking to all the people um, involved and also obviously from, from today, the work is normal. So yeah, no, the, the statements, I'm yet to see a, a well enough written statement that I could actually base an investigation off. You really need to talk to them. Um, Faizan asks, question from New Zealand. When is the best time to do PIPO analysis during investigation? Uh, Fazen never. Um, so this is quite often gets confused with ICAM. PIPO is not an analysis. PIPO is actually just the way they um, they collect their in their information and classify information for analysis, which is what the ICAM tools, the rest of the ICAMs for. Uh, my suggestion is don't do PIPO as a collect as a as a way of framing collecting your evidence. My suggestion would be go back to the um, workers done, workers intended, workers uh, normal, and classify and collect your evidence that way. Um, that's that's what I uh, that's what I would do. Right, I'm not sure I, I get this one, but you might. Anonymous says I do not agree anymore. I can focus on people, environment, equipment, process, and organisation, not only people. Uh, yeah, that's that's the again that's that people. Um, yeah, that's it's it's well intended, but it doesn't work. I've yet to okay. see it work well. 
All right, this is a, quite a long one from Adam. A good ICAM was meant, <coughs> sorry, meant to look at conditions and circumstances around the job in brackets events conditions chart. What was meant to happen and what actually happens, the gaps between the two, gap analysis, organizational factors. Do you think there's an issue with ICAM training, follow-up <coughs> coaching and execution? It seems people like to do the course and are they chucked in the deep end without a good understanding of the model and processes? Yep. No, look, I, I agree. Um, I agree with that, Adam, in a way. I think people are chucked in uh, at the deep end. Um, firstly, I'll, I'll address the second part first. Yeah, I've seen too often where, where people are training. Oh, I'm trained in ICAM. I mean, you can even do the course online. Um, I think I did it once. It took me about an hour. Um, and then they're an ICAM facilitator. Um, the problem with that is it's like anything. If you do not practice this and you do not do it all the time, you get rusty and you don't know how to do it well. Um, the other issue is that it just keeps focusing in on what happened at the time of the event, not how the task is generally undertaken. So you might pull out one or two organisational factors that happened during the event. The problem is you miss all the organisational factors that still exist all the time. You might just get the one or two that happened for that one event at that time. Okay, um, Jeremy asks, is it practicable to take this approach with every level of event or do you recommend restricting to a higher level of event risk? I think you answered that. Before. Yeah, that's, uh, I do recommend higher level. Yep. Okay, Anonymous said, how do we think about human factors in this framework? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by that, but yeah, um, it's just one of the conditions we have to look at when we're looking at the gaps. Jeff asks, are there any limitations in this method? Uh, yep, deliberate sabotage. So we wouldn't bother if someone's deliberately sabotaged, uh, damaged equipment deliberately or hurt themselves deliberately. Uh, if we've discovered that, then there's no point continuing. Uh, that's performance management. Okay, um, question. When is the best time to do PEPO analysis during investigation? Have we had that or? Uh, we did, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, John said, um, do you think organisations invest enough resources into learning from work and events? Uh, I think they do when there's actually someone like seriously or critically injured, though they've got no choice, so they do. I think for potential near misses, uh, they clearly don't, which is why uh, you only have to see how many repeat events you have um, that that happens. Okay. Um uh, there's, there's, they just keep coming in. <laughs> I don't know what um, what you want to keep, do. Well, we can keep going a little bit longer. If that's up to you. Sam. Yeah. Okay. Jen says we use a risk matrix, which seems to work. Hopefully, that's for detail. Yeah, that should be for determining the investigation level. Yep. Okay. Britta says, Mark, will you be willing to share your slides with us? Uh, yeah, I think that the this is this video is being shared, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. it's yeah well we'll talk about it afterwards we'll, we'll send a link out to everybody yeah. with this on um, a great what is, anon anonymous said great insights thanks Mark so yeah I think we good. missed one there what is your accident yeah. investigation result come out so it's identifying the issues so you just pick those work so when you've got the conditions and that you just look through the conditions and the ones that are that you don't like well the ones that are obviously adverse um, they're, they're the conditions you need to fix. It's not root cause analysis. We're not looking for root cause. We're looking for issues, gaps, learning opportunities. Those are the things we're looking for. Um, 
my, uh, my understanding investigation, we can use ICAM process and plus your different pr principles. How do you think? Yep, as I put at the end there, um, yeah, you can just plug it into your model. You can just plug, or you simply do, and there are other organisations doing this right now, um, large organisations doing this right now, um, who just plug it into their model and then they just do the ICAM analysis off the back of that. All right. Um, Anonymous says, when is the most appropriate to ask questions? Always. Before the event happens, preferably. Should be out there. Um, but yeah, as soon as possible. But yeah, but you should be, uh, if you want to gain people's trust and insight, ask the questions before an event. Okay. Rachel um, just, is just a big fan. Thanks, Rachel. <laughs> um, safe says, how to change organisational culture from blaming to accepting errors are normal? Suggest so you have a look at um, some work there, um, safety different, just culture, um, you know, go online, listen to Todd Conklin, look at the hot principles, um, you know, the five hot principles, error is normal, blame fixes nothing, systems drive behaviour, learning is vital, um, and response matters. Um, yeah, look for human organisational performance, um, Todd Conklin's got some great uh, podcasts on it. Okay. Um, analysis also asks, I believe asking people who are involved in the incidents operational learning questions as soon as possible upon the incident happening. Yep, but just not them. Everyone that does the task, stop. You know, focus on the task, not on the event. Right. Uh, Gary says, you make a very valid point about people doing a course and they're not getting the experience using the tools. How do we as a profession facilitate this? Um, stop giving people who um, don't facilitate often uh, the tools to do it. <laughs> you know, it, like to do an investigation properly, it's not, you know, it's not a one-off. Like you need, you need experienced people to do an investigation. Okay. Well, he said, isn't it better to use this methodology before incidents happen? Yes. Fantastic. Okay. We'd still love to see more of it. Yeah. Um, what's the difference between hop and oh, safety too? Wow. Um, do, 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 do. Uh, hop is those five principles I've already talked about. Um, safety two, look, it's huge, but we're talking about safety one and safety two. Um, it's actually safety one and safety two. Safety one is more about Taylorism and scientific management top down. Um, safety one and safety two, which is, so it's not just safety two by itself. It's more about embracing the worker as a solution. Um, you know, safety being an ethical responsibility, not a pure bureaucratic one, um, and along those lines. So, yeah. Ryan says, when do you think an external facilitator should conduct an investigation? Uh, uh, there's a couple of ways, a couple of reasons for that. One, if you, uh, especially small teams, if and and um, there's a there's might be an apprehension of bias or prejudgment. Um, and secondly, um, if you've actually seriously hurt someone. Um, I would get someone in, uh, internally, in, um, obviously subject to legal professional privilege, mate, cover all those bases. Okay, Linda says, brilliant tool. Thank you, Linda. Um, Jane says, worked in this profession for many years in mining and construction, now manufacturing, being involved in many different systems, um, including ICAM 5 I love this approach. I pride myself on being proactive and this approach is great for our business, so. Thank you, thanks, Jane. Um, and Gareth. The last one, you mentioned bias in investigations and that leading to focus on people being the problem. What other bias do we need to be aware of during the investigations and the questions we ask? Um, hindsight bias, 
is probably the big one. Um, you know, counterfactuals, if only they'd done this, if only I had this in place. Um, that's probably the big big one. Um, and, um, oh, look, there's, there's, yeah, there's a whole heap of bias. Um, you know, just from your own personal experience, um, we, we, we have bias. Um, so where we come from and all that side, so there's, yeah, that's, sorry, that's a huge question. <laughs> sorry, Gareth, but hindsight bias is probably the big one where we've already prejudged the investigation. Okay. This is definitely the last question. It's no, <laughs> I want to investigate my incidents myself, but would like to have it looked at by an expert before publishing. <laughs> is there a popular tool for this in the industry? Um, well, as you can go to my website and, and there's a link to that timeline tool that I've got there. Um, yeah, so you can have a look at that. All right. Um, we Last have to, one? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Jeff says, which methods do the regulators normally use? Um, look, they, they'll, they'll, they'll take anything that seems to have a clear process behind it. This, it depends on the regulator. Some of them are a little bit uncomfortable, like learning teams is by themselves are a fantastic way to investigate what's going on, uh, but it's extremely new. Uh, so there, so uh, there's still some learning and, um, and familiarization with regulators by there, but that anything with a sequence of events and identifying those, you know, they're, they're happy to use those. So, you know, they've seen them all. So, cause businesses don't use more than one. So, you know, the popular ones, the ones that are out there, I can time on five wise, they're all, you know, they're all out there. Okay, right. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's a wrap. Um, so, um, as I said earlier, there's an email coming out now with the link to Mark's um, email address and um, his uh, website. Um, I, I would like to really thank Mark. That was very, really, really good. I think there's a lot of good feedback coming in the chat as well. No worries. Uh, appreciate that. Appreciate all the questions. And yeah, um, feel free um, to connect with me on LinkedIn, send me any more questions or messages. I'm quite happy for that. Uh, and thanks for all the positive comments. I appreciate it too. And thanks for my for hosting us today. Thank you. All right, everybody have a great weekend. Any questions, email either of us. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.